Let's pray together. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my help and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, O Lord, is sinking sand. Thank you that today the church gathered is a group of people whose commonality and confession is that Jesus is the Lord. Thank you for your word which can give us light and help and help us to know how we ought to live. And I pray that, Lord Jesus, you now would meet with us, that you'd speak to us, that you'd help me to blend this passage and the applications that you've placed on my soul with a great burden today, that you would help them to be a blessing and encouragement and a spiritual help to our people. So come now, Lord Jesus, and speak through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, Sarah, my wife, and I celebrated a significant anniversary. We celebrated our 20th year of being married together. And um, it's been an amazing year, uh, 20 years of being married to a woman who is a gift to me in ways that the Lord really only knows. And I found myself walking around the house on our um, anniversary day, and even before that, and I kept saying, two decades. <laughs> my boys are like, why do you keep saying that? I'm like, because we've been married two decades. And I was getting rather annoying to everyone around, but I just couldn't get over the fact that a two-decade anniversary is a really, really big deal. And so I wanted to mark that with a, uh, a special gift. And so I, I bought my wife a tree. And you might think, well, why would you buy a tree? Well, not just any tree. I bought her a white spire birch tree. The reason is that that tree has a bit of symbolism for us as a family. It was one of those things that we couldn't bring with us from Michigan to Indiana. Um, After our daughter died, my father's family gave us that tree, and we planted it in our front yard. And so I've always wanted that tree kind of back. And so for our 20th anniversary, I bought her... Um, almost a replica of that tree in Michigan, and planted that 400-pound bad boy in our backyard and put it right in the window such that in my favorite spot of um, reading God's Word in the morning or just even this morning before coming to worship, just reviewing my notes, getting my heart ready, I can see that tree right outside the window. A tree is significant not just because it's beautiful, and it is, but because of what it means. It's, It's more than a tree. That, that white spire birch is a dynamic symbol of a marriage that has bent and blown in both the sunshine of blessing and also the storms, really big storms of life, and yet has remained gloriously alive. So when I, I see that tree, it's, it's more than a tree. It's a, a dynamic symbol, if you will. I'm sure you have dynamic symbols in your life. If you're married, you probably have one on your, your left hand. A dynamic symbol. You don't think it's dynamic? Just take it off for a few weeks and watch what your spouse does. Uh, you'll find yourself in my office very quickly, right? Something's wrong. You're not wearing the wedding band, not wearing the wedding ring. Or maybe you have a, a locket or a necklace, uh, maybe um, a screensaver or um, something, a post on your Facebook or something you put a memento on a shelf. There are things in life that are dynamic symbols. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the tabernacle is a dynamic symbol. True, it's a facility. People met for worship there. But there's something more that's going on. 
In our little section that we're in right now in our study of Exodus, chapters 25 to 33 are all about the God who is holy, and we're learning about the worship facility in which God's people met. And it, this facility was designed to not only be a place where God's people dwelt, but it was meant to send a message. It was designed to be a little touch of heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. I've done a lot of reading this week on the subject of the tabernacle, and Peter ends in his commentary, says this. This was stunning to me. In the midst of a fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes another act of creation, a building project that is nothing less than a return to pre-fall splendor. The tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance, not just because of the sacrifices and offerings within its walls, but simply because of what it is. And here's a really important statement. A piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. The tabernacle is a piece of holy ground in the midst of a fallen world that has lost its way. I read that statement in a commentary on Wednesday morning around 9.30. And it struck me with such force because 30 minutes later, the news broke on my computer screen about the Supreme Court ruling regarding the Defense of Marriage Act and Proposition 8 from California. And I found in that moment my heart longing for this moment on the Lord's Day. If I could have, I would have called all of you and said, let's get together for worship right now. Because I wanted to sing. I wanted to hear God's word. I wanted to be reminded. I wanted to go into the sanctuary of God's house because I find myself increasingly looking for refuge because I feel more and more like an exile. What I want to do today is to connect two things for you, and I don't think they're a force fit. I'm going to try and connect the tabernacle and the contemporary issues that we're facing as 21st century American Christians. And I want to show you and connect those two things together. I hope that you'll leave today having not only a new appreciation for the tabernacle, but I want you today motivated to live out the gospel in a world that church that desperately needs it. And so let's start by looking at this tabernacle, and then we'll make the bridge in a moment. We're going to first look at the design. And the design is something that God very specifically gave to Moses. Chapter 26 and verse 30 um, says this, You shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So God told Moses very specifically what the tabernacle was to look like, and he even showed him. Um, something in order that he might know what it should look like. The, the, the word tabernacle in verse 1, you shall make the tabernacle. That word means a living or dwelling place. And the tabernacle was essentially the first worship center um, where God intended to meet with his people. It was designed to resemble the dwelling places that the Israelites had, a tent. And yet it was the intersection between the transcendence and the imminence of God. We looked at this last week. The transcendence of God mean, meaning his otherness, his holiness, his righteousness, his, his, the fact that he's dangerous in our sinful condition. And the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies represented that 
transcendence. And then we have the imminence. That's also a part of the tabernacle, which was represented in the table of showbread and the menorah candle and the altar of incense. And that's what worship is. It is the intersection between God's transcendence and his imminence. So what was the tabernacle all about? It was, it was comprised of curtains and frames which overlapped one another and interlocked. Verses 1 and 2 tells us that there were ten curtains of beautiful linen. They were skillfully woven together and even had cherubim embedded in the embroidery of the fabric. And in that first layer, the cherubim were there. And from last week, we learned that the cherubim were intended to communicate the holiness, the righteousness of, of God's presence. There's three different layers of curtains. The first layer is the embroidered layer. The second layer is some level or, or some kind of goat skin in verse 7. That's a, a middle layer for insulation, for protection. And then finally there was an exterior layer of dried or tanned ram skins and goat skins, which likely made the sanctuary waterproof. As you can see in the image here, the tabernacle was supported by a series of, of ladder-like frames that were placed in 40 bases of silver in the perimeter and then locked together with poles or beams of gold. So all of this would have been visible inside of the tabernacle, this, this beautiful look, and yet the outside of it would have appeared just to be like a, a tent. You might find it surprising how small the real actual tabernacle was total dimensions of the tabernacle were 40 feet 45 feet long 15 feet wide and 15 feet high that's what these poles on the platform represent this was the dimensions of the tabernacle and so we have 45 feet long 15 feet wide and in this section over here would have been the holy of holies which was a perfect cube 15 by 15 by 15 and Remember that, because we'll come back to it in a moment. That perfection of the cube of the holiness where God would dwell becomes a, a model or a message of what God is trying to say. So you have the Holy of Holies, and then you have over here the Holy Place, which was 30 feet by 15 by 15, and they were different in their purpose and in terms of what they were intended to communicate. The Ark of the Covenant was contained, was, was put inside the Holy of Holies, and that was the most sacred place. In fact, in front of the Holy of Holies, the text tells us, is a curtain, and not a curtain that opens, a solid curtain that extends from one side of the tabernacle to the other. The Holy of Holies was only entered once a year by one person, the high priest. And so this curtain was not designed to be something that would open so you could come in. Instead, everything about the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was about a barrier. It was intended to keep the Holy of Holies separate, which is really significant because of the death of Jesus. You know that an earthquake happened, and then the temple was torn in two. A symbolic, important message is sent that God's presence is no longer um, set apart, and, and there's a barrier between God and mankind that Jesus has made a way. The book of Hebrews tells us to come boldly to that throne of grace. We also have the holy place, which was... Uh, the spot where the menorah candles, uh, candlestick was placed, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. So that's the essential design of the tabernacle proper. Outside of the tabernacle was a courtyard. And in that courtyard was the altar of burnt offering. It was made of bronze. The reason it's bronze is 
It's not as precious of a metal as gold. And there's a sense that moving out from the Holy of Holies, there's a a lessening of the holy materials that are used. And so it's fitting that the altar outside in the tabernacle courtyard would be made of bronze. It's a fairly large structure, seven feet six on each side. It was a square and four feet and a half in terms of its height. It had horns on each corner and a grating. Think of it like a grill that was in the middle. Fire was kept underneath and burnt offerings were placed on this altar. For the average Jewish person, everything that they experienced on the tabernacle was basically coming into that courtyard and offering a sacrifice. None of them, unless they were priests, ever went inside the the tabernacle itself. The doors or the curtains could be open so you could see inside the holy place, but no one ever saw the Holy of Holies, and no one ever saw the Ark of the Covenant. So Israel, in their worship, would come and offer sacrifices, and they would have to believe by faith that behind the veil of the, of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest did sprinkle blood on that covenant, and their main experience of God was a regular sacrifice, where in coming into God's presence, they learned, from, from a biblical perspective, one of the most important lessons, and that is this, God is holy, you are not, and you can't come into God's presence unless something dies. That was the message of the tabernacle itself. There was a courtyard. And the courtyard encompassed the entire perimeter of the tabernacle. The complex faced east. was approximately 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. Do you have any idea how big that is? I didn't. So what we did is we uh, figured out what size that would be in this sanctuary. And we didn't plan it this way, but strangely enough, the tabernacle would fit right inside this facility. In fact, we have some folks who have signs at the four corners. Could you folks grab those and hold those up? You'll need to look around and you'll need to see that if that would be the one side and there and there and there, that would be the courtyard of the tabernacle. So just get a sense of the scale. That's the size of the courtyard. This is the size of the tabernacle itself. It would have been placed like right in the middle over here. You get a sense of just the scale and the size of it. Thank you for your help. You guys can put those down. There were curtains that were surrounding the courtyard proper. They were seven and a half feet tall. And, and so when you entered in, there was a sense that everything around you was now entirely closed off. All that you could see would be the altar of burnt offering, a wash basin that we'll talk about in a few weeks, and the tabernacle itself. If you take a picture back, so to speak, this diagram was helpful to me. And some of the Old Testament scholars that I read this week on tabernacle and everything that was going on made a really important point that I think is worth noting that there were two squares, two perfect 75-foot squares inside that tabernacle. The square on the left is where God and his worship and the holiness of God and that sort of quadrant. And then the other quadrant was where the people dwelt. And if you think about it, there's a there's a, an interesting parallel. You have the Holy of Holies and then you have the holy place And then you have the general courtyard. And this pictures what's even happening on on Mount Sinai with the people who are at the base of the camp, the elders who have come up the mountain, and Moses who's going to go up into glory. And there's something about this model that's intended to communicate something about even what what it's like in God's presence. So think of what we have. We have the Holy of Holies. That's a perfect square. 
The tabernacle itself is contained in one of two squares, and the tabernacle courtyard is in the same proportion as the entire, or as the tabernacle itself. So the courtyard mimics in scale the tabernacle. The point is that if you look at the tabernacle through this lens, that there's not only a movement from lesser degrees of holiness as you get outside of the holy of holies, but there's also this sense that the tabernacle and the worship of God was intended to bring order in the midst of chaos. There's an orderliness to the design of the tabernacle and such that when the Israelites came into that tabernacle environment, everything else around them would have not been in view. There would have been a singular focus of what it meant to come into the presence of a holy God. Again, Peter ends in his commentary, says this, The precise measurements of the structure combined with the symbolism of the curtains and the furnishings are not without deep significance. The tabernacle seems to represent a microcosm of creation itself, the splendor and beauty of materials used, fine fabrics, precious metals and stones, affirm the goodness of the created world. The precise and perfect dimensions of the tabernacle indicate a sense of order amid chaos. Remember the quote that I gave you at the beginning? That the tabernacle was a piece of holy ground in the midst of a culture that had lost its way. Here's the point of the tabernacle. It is this, that the tabernacle was designed to bring God's people into a connection with the living God and to remind them what true reality was. In order for peace to be brought into their life, in order for order to be brought in the midst of chaos, the tabernacle was a reminder to Israel that as they went into worship, that this is what is life, this is what life is all about. This is order in the midst of the chaos of post-Garden of Eden. So I was studying this and thinking about this, I couldn't help think of the psalmist's words in Psalm 73. Take your Bible, let's go over there. It's a little bit longer of a passage, but it's, it's worth looking at. What I'm driving at and the point that I'm making here is this, is that the tabernacle was a facility of worship designed to bring order in the midst of a world filled with chaos. And I want to suggest to you that the corporate gathering of God's people, even today, us here, has the same purpose as the same end. Oh, true, we don't have a tabernacle, we don't have a temple like they had in Israel, and a lot has changed, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, there was a reason why my heart wanted and longed to be together with God's people. Something natural and right and spiritually oriented is pulsing through my soul when I live in a world that feels so broken. I want order and peace. The Bible calls it shalom, and that's what happens in worship. Look at Psalm 73. You'll resonate with this text, I think. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's his introduction. And then he just goes off the reservation. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever been there? Seen somebody who's an unrighteous dude and he nails it in everything. And you're like, come on, God, strike him with lightning or something. I mean, come on. This is not fair. I'm being righteous and godly. This guy's a creep and he gets ahead. 
Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Does this ever tick you off? You look around the world and it seems as though the unrighteous man just gets ahead and doesn't have any issues. And internally, there's just this thing that goes off in my soul like, God, come on. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're mocking God's authority. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see what he's saying? Some of you have thought this. I know you have. Everyone else is ungodly. You're trying to be righteous. And you look at how the prosperity of the the wicked and how the unrighteous, they get ahead. and And there's something in your mind that says, you know what? Just chuck it all. Doesn't make any difference anyways. I try and be righteous. I try and do what's right. Doesn't do any good. And there's some of you who have doubted whether or not it was truly worth the cost of following Christ. Some of you who have labored hard to maintain your sexual purity. You fought hard and then you get in conversations with friends or people who are near you and they mock, they, they make fun. And you think, you know what? Is this really worth it? Do I really have to fight this hard for purity? You're involved in a marriage and you're covenantally committed to somebody else and you're fighting for the purity of your relationship and to maintain a strong and healthy marriage. And sometimes in the back of your mind you wonder, you know what, is it really? Is this really the best way to go? And you wonder those things. Look what he says. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. In other words, I'm just completely overwhelmed. Notice the turn in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. See the turn? Until I came into the house of God, then I understood therein. His mind, his heart is being reset. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nonetheless, I am continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel. And Afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that beautiful? What is he doing there? You know what he's doing? He is preaching to his soul and he's reminding his heart of spiritual order in the midst of chaos. In the midst of a world that is broken, in the midst of a world that has lost its way, there is this sanctuary of peace. You know, the older I get, the more experience I have in life, the more conversations I have with people, the more things that I see happen in the world, I am more and more and more convinced, grievously so, that we live in a really, really broken world. My heart just 
breaks at the stuff that I hear, the terrible decisions that people make, the high cost of sin, the consequences that just the ripple effects that are just so incredibly enormous. And my heart longs for the day when Jesus will come and He'll take all the presence of sin out of the world and He'll say something like this, Behold, I make all things new. When He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and He removes the presence of sin and recreates the entire world so there's no sin, no pain, no grief, no no brokenness, no chaos. There's only peace and security and righteousness and joy and Jesus for all of eternity. My heart longs for that. And friends, the tabernacle was supposed to be a taste of what was to come. And I would suggest to you that our gathering together is supposed to be a taste of what is to come. That even this church... It's supposed to be a sanctuary in the midst of the exile of brokenness. Ephesians 2. Take your Bible, go there. You see, what Jesus does in the New Testament is that He brings about a, a peace that could have never come without Him. And what we also see in the New Testament is that the shift takes place from God dwelling in a building, in a tabernacle, in a tent, in a temple. And then God, by His Spirit, dwells in us individually. Such that the new temple, the new tabernacle, isn't the building at 96th and Town. It is us together as God's people. That we are now indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit and the new tabernacle that God is building is not a physical structure, but rather the collective gathering of God's people who have the same mantra and the same passion that they exist to follow Jesus even in the midst of a world that is hard and broken. Ephesians 2, 11-22 says this, Therefore remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Pretty depressing. In other words, there's a barrier between you and God. And then the beautiful hope. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our... What's the next word? Peace. Who has made both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access into one Spirit to the Father. So listen to this. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's us. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, notice the tabernacle parallels, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, do you see the parallels? The tabernacle is where God dwelt, and now the body of Christ, us individually coming together in a corporate sense. We are the temple. We are the tabernacle of the Spirit of the living God. So there's a clear sense that Jesus brought peace, and that we are now together, this new dwelling of God. We are the new sanctuary. We are the new place of peace. The new place of oneness and unity. Listen to Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews takes this even further. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's what he's telling for them that they should do in regards to their worship. And now look how he connects it to how they are to treat and to hold one another together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day coming or drawing near. What day? The day when Jesus returns. So as the culture gets worse and worse and the day seems like it's nearer and nearer, it means that the body of Christ ought to grow closer and closer, that there ought to be a greater longing to be able to be together as the world gets darker and darker and things get more and more hostile, that the beauty of what happens in the context of the body of Christ becomes even more necessary and important and vital and life-giving. In other words, listen to me, you can't survive in this culture anymore without being connected to people who love and follow Jesus if you love and follow Jesus. You need a body of Christ to come around you. You need people to lead you in worship, people to speak God's truth to you, to remind you of what you believe and why it's really true. You need the collective gathering of God's people to encourage and motivate your heart. You need peace in the midst of a storm. You need sanctuary in the midst of chaos. And that is what the body of Christ is meant to be. So whether it was the Old Testament or the New, the body of Christ was designed to be a sanctuary, a place of holy ground in the midst of a world or a culture that had lost its way. So when I think of where this text has landed in Exodus 26 in my life, I've been thinking a lot recently about what it means to live and worship as an exile. I want to speak to a few things regarding where we're at culturally and try and help you frame some thoughts about what it means for our church, for you personally, to be a place of spiritual refuge and helping you to think biblically during these days. Last week I announced that we're going to host a College Park Institute forum. Um, It's going to be on August 18th. That's a date change from what I said last time. On the subject of sexual identity and homosexuality. Our hope is to be able to help you 
know how to be able to speak into our world and our culture in a way that is winsome and biblical and right. I also said last week we were going to post a blog article about the closing of Exodus International. I spoke too soon, and I'm going to defer that out a couple of weeks. And the reason is we have some other things we have to talk about first that are, frankly, probably a little bit more urgent and more important. That blog will be there, but a couple of weeks from now. So my heart was pretty heavy Thursday morning, just processing life and ministry, and I spent some time with the Lord. I took out my journal, and I just started writing out some thoughts as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, some things that I needed to try and help guide my own thinking. And so I just want to share those with you, all under the, the banner, the rubric of what it means for us to be a sanctuary. Here's the first thing that I was reminded. Friends, nothing foundational has changed. The Lord brought my heart to Psalm 46. Listen to this text. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations raged, the kingdoms tottered. He uttered his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I needed to be reminded that God is still on the throne. The gospel is still our hope. Righteousness in the end wins the day. That's why you have the book of Revelation in the Bible. So that when life is dark or hard or bleak and you look around and go, we are losing, the answer is, yeah, but in the end, we win the war. It is a reminder that the gospel still changes the hearts and minds of people. Nothing foundational has changed. And yet here's the other contrast to that. At the same time, our culture in America is changing rapidly. Stunning. Someone I read in a... Contemporary news article said this is the fastest social change ever seen in the history of our country. It's not just that social change is happening. That's happened throughout our history. But it's the, it's the pace that it's taking place. I mean, just in the last year, there's twice the number of states that have approved same-sex marriage. We have, I saw a graph of, of the, the, the number of people on your television screen, actors, actresses, well-known people espousing an alternative lifestyle or a a, a gay or homosexual lifestyle. The number is just stunning. And public opinion has has shifted very, very quickly on this issue. So if you look around and you're just like, man, things are changing. They are. And they're changing very, very quickly. Third, another part of the challenge is that we have new categories and they are part of the problem. Let me explain what I mean. Before the advent of post-modernity, followers of Jesus would have been excoriated for their belief that what they believed in was true. So back in the 1670s and maybe a little bit of the 80s, there was this sense of, you know, we need to prove that Christianity is right. And so therefore you have apologetics that really based its argument on factual evidence. So remember like Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict and books like that, where if you can just prove through scientific reasoning or data or logical arguments that the Bible is right, you'll be able to convince people that 
they could believe in Jesus. And so believers then would have been um, castigated or shamed because they believed that something was true when it was false. But that's not the same category that we have today. The categories have changed. The categories now, instead of true and false, the categories are tolerance or arrogance. So in the rise of post-modernity, believers are no longer shamed for believing something that they might think isn't true. Instead, believers are shamed for believing they are right and others are wrong. The result is that there are categories that are very difficult to navigate. Because who, who loves Jesus... How does a follower of Jesus navigate these waters? Because your option is essentially to say, no, this is what the Bible says, and there's only one way, and then the charge is, well, you're arrogant. And who wants to be known as an arrogant Christian? And so people back up, and they they duck, and they, they shy away from the truth of God's Word, and because of the cultural paradigms that we have, it's a very tough place to navigate. So if you have found yourself struggling, how do I talk about this? There's a reason why it's hard, because the cultural categories have shifted and changed. And that's why we're doing this CPI forum is to try and help you know how to engage in a compassionate, clear way with a culture where the categories have changed. No longer is it true or false, but it's tolerant or arrogant. Fourth, I was reminded, friends, that Christians have always been considered foolish, and yet the gospel has thrived. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the contrast right there. If you see the gospel for all that it is, and a man named Jesus hung on a cross and he died and he bore the wrath of God, and you see that and you believe it, it is the power of God to salvation for you. But if you don't see it, it's idiocy, it's foolishness, and it's arrogance that you would say that that's the only way to God. And this is always the way that it's been. In fact, I think that one of the challenges that many people within our culture who are evangelical and Americans are struggling with right now is the uncoupling of their religious beliefs and the American way of life. For so long, and maybe appropriately so, those were so intertwined, and I think there are some folks who are really struggling with the uncoupling of those two and really trying to figure out what it means to be in exile in a world you thought you never would be in exile in. Fifth, there is a difference from being shamed and being ashamed. There's a temptation out of fear or a temptation out of shame of you don't want to be called arrogant, you don't want to be called intolerant, and so therefore you're silent. But I want you to understand there's a difference between being shamed for the gospel and being ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we are exhorted in the Scriptures to endure the same shame that Jesus endured, who, Hebrews 12 says, considering the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And so there's a sense in which we need to embrace the fact that being shamed is one thing. Being ashamed is entirely a different matter. Hebrews 13, listen to this. As even a tabernacle metaphor. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, part of the beauty of the joy of following Christ is that we get to follow him outside the camp and endure the same shame that he did. We're able to embrace what it means to not be ashamed, but to often be shamed. Here's the last two. I hope these are helpful and hopeful for you. Number six, we have an unprecedented opportunity to be salt and light in the world. So listen to me. Listen to me. Look, at, look, look right at me. Don't panic. And please don't get angry. Don't spout off about all these things and think carefully, love deeply, cherish the gospel, and don't panic. You need to love your neighbors and co-workers who identify themselves as gay. You need, to identi- you need to love them with a love that can only come from somebody who's embraced the beauty of the gospel. You ought to be known as the most kind and gracious person, but you also have to be known as a person who believes what you believe. So therefore, as a church, as elders and pastors, we want to help you to have better answers, more winsome arguments, gracious words on this hand, and at the same time, not fearing unpopularity or shame. This is an opportunity for Christians to show the way that love and truth can be applied together. This is an opportunity for us to demonstrate what it means to be salt and light in the world. When you read the Bible through this lens, things come alive. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4.12. I love this. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. I mean, just just get your head around those. Those are... Huge. You gotta love Jesus enormously to, when you're reviled, that you bless them. Someone gets in your face and is reviling you, and you are gonna bless and pray for them. That's huge. I don't think very many evangelical Christians are ready for that. No, I'm revile, I'm gonna revile you back. You get in my face, I'm gonna get in yours. I'm going to defend. I'm going to use my rights. I'm going to get after you because you're getting after me. And here is the, the admonition. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And then Paul says this. I love this. We have become and are still the scum of the world. I need you to embrace this mentality. I am the scum of the earth. In fact, I said in the first service, what a great name for a church, right? (laughs) First scum of the earth church. And then afterwards, Pastor Nate told me that in Denver, there is a church called scum of the earth. So it's kind of edgy, as you could tell, you know. But what a mentality. We are the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Listen, this takes humility and grace and the exaltation of Christ to say for you and for all that you've done for us and because of my passion for you, yes, I am willing to become the scum of the world. And friends, I just want you to embrace what it means to be shamed and not ashamed, what it means to be clear while being viewed as the scum of the world. 
We have an unprecedented opportunity to be salt and light. And finally, number seven, and this is the most important thing that I say in this section, is that we should celebrate the sanctuary of Christianity. I would suggest to you that we have and have an increasingly unique opportunity to present to the world the refuge of God's way. Friends, post-modernity will not last. The idea that truth is found inside of ourselves, that I can self-determine truth and whatever is true to me is true to me, it doesn't matter if it's true to you, that doesn't work. It doesn't work with contracts and it doesn't work with buses. What do I mean by that? You walk out on the street and see a bus coming, it doesn't matter if you think that bus is real or not, you got four seconds to move out of the way, you're going to meet Jesus, right? That bus is real, whether or not you think it's real or not. It doesn't matter if I don't feel like that bus is boom real, huh? Right? That's, it was real, dude. Get out of the way. So the fact of the matter is post-modernity will not work. Listen, eventually, I don't know what's going to happen in my lifetime, my kid's lifetime, my grandkid's lifetime, I don't know, but eventually it will collapse. It will collapse personally, and some of you have seen it. Morals are just whatever I think they are. So I go from one relation to another, to another, to another. Are those people happy? They are miserable. It's a self-implosion. It's a lie that the enemy uses to convince people that they are their own God and they self-determine their own standard of what right and wrong is. And the effect of it is an unraveling of their morals and an uncoupling of their soul from from their very essence of their Creator. Therefore, there is an opportunity to hold up the sanctuary of blood-bought, grace-filled, Jesus-cherishing, righteous, living Christianity. Listen to me. I need... Quickly. Clap, clap, clap. Real quick. I I got a lot to say here, so let's get going. So, what I need... Listen to me. What I need from you is our pastors are going to continue to preach the Word of God. We're going to teach you what God's Word says. Here's what we need from you. We need you living Christ-like lives in our community that help to validate the sanctuary of God's house. We need men and women who say, you know what, we are going to model Christ-like love. We're going to be compassionate to our neighbors. We are going to be truthful with God's Word. We don't care if we're ashamed, but we're not going to act in a way that is shameful. It means we need young men and women who aren't married to maintain their sexual purity. For you to be the only person on your campus or in your fraternity or in your sorority or in your dorm or around the lunch table and as everyone else is telling about all their sexual exploits and they come to you and you're like, yeah, I'm a virgin. And they look at you like, I don't know one. Can I touch you? What, 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 you know, are you in the Smithsonian? And then you have the opportunity to be able to proclaim the beauty of why sexual purity is a prize to hold in the name of Jesus. We need men and women who are married to cherish the beauty of covenantal marriage and for you to make the marriage between a man and a woman something that the world would look at and go, wow, that is incredibly beautiful. We need children who are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord such that the beauty of God's display comes on that home and people see what it's like to really live in a world that's lost and broken, but homes are a sanctuary. And we need people who are willing to be joyful in their service and unyielding in their commitment to follow Jesus wherever he would have them to go. So friends, there is an unprecedented opportunity for joyful Christianity and sacrificial living that in the midst of darkness, light can shine even brighter. And I'm begging you to go shine that light. To make righteousness your passion and godliness your joy. The tabernacle was designed to be a piece of holy ground in the midst of a broken culture. But friends, today, we are that tabernacle. 
We are the dwelling place of God for His Spirit and by His Spirit. So this is not a time. This is not a time to build a fortress and a moat and fill it with gospel gators. (laughs) This is a time for you to be deployed in the world knowing that Jesus sends you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and no matter what happens to you, you are safe in the palm of God, and therefore embrace the reality of being the scum of the world and demonstrate to a watching world the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now more than ever, we need gospel-centered people who live out the message of the Prince of Peace. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my help and stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, help us to be a sanctuary in the midst of a challenging environment and culture. Help us to be gracious and kind people who are more in love with you than we are the favor of people. Help us to know how to navigate these really tricky waters. We want people whose mindset and frame of reference is so different than ours to know that we love them so desperately and we so long for them to experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. Help us to be winsome and joyful and kind, but also truthful and clear and honest. So for the countless hundreds of issues that... My brothers and sisters face living this out. Lord, give them help. Give them grace to know how to be able to be equipped. Thank you that you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. So help us, Lord, to be a sanctuary in the midst of chaos. And we believe this and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear this word of the Lord. And now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you for every good work to do his will, working in us what is good and pleasing to the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you.